before the 15th Amendment was ratified in the Constitution. To know that some of the first minds to discuss birthright citizenship and equal voting were here. They were here. These men continued to hold and organize state conventions for black suffrage and for community uplift. They then also participated in the National Colored Convention Movement. And the National Colored Convention Movement was that free African Americans would meet in different states with each other to discuss the state of black America and then bring that information home to their local communities and then be able to duplicate different efforts in a unified effect. And this was twofold, one for black civil rights in the free states, but also for the abolition of slavery. Men from Troy went to these conventions. They also then in 1847 held the Black National Convention. That means they brought to Troy some of the leading black abolitionists. This is where you get your Frederick Douglass walking the streets. This is where you get Charles B. Ray walking the streets. Stephen Myers, which we're familiar with in Albany, coming across the river. James W.C. Pennington, who had escaped slavery and was living in Connecticut. He became one of their boys. He penned a letter in 1840, and they supported this letter, which he took with him to the Anti-Slavery Society meeting in London, England. The black children supported him as their black representative for black civil rights in America, and for the abolition of slavery. At the time in 1847, he was on mission in Jamaica. He made his trip from Jamaica to here. Samuel Ringgold Ward, there's a new uh, biography out about him, everybody should read it. He was the cousin of Henry Highland Garnett. He came here. He had been active out in other parts of New York State preaching to white churches, which was very rare. And Phoebe Van Rensselaer and her husband, Alexander Tuohy, had left Troy, and they'd been back to the Nassau Bahamas, but in 1847, they came back here. They used all of this meeting space and this time to coordinate a black civil rights effort on a global scale. And so I think sometimes we think about black history, and I did this as a kid, and I thought, okay, small, local. Where were all the black people? But then I saw the black people here not only acted local, but they thought global. They made those connections and they protected them. The other thing that they did, of course, through their schoolhouse and through their social organizations with the Yates Juvenile Anti-Slavery Society, meant that a young Peter Baltimore would travel with Henry Highland Garnett to New York City to attend the larger American Anti-Slavery Society meetings. And that was the integrated, and I dare say it, one of the first or precursors of the NAACP an interracial cooperative network looking for the best life experiences for African Americans enslaved and free and advocated for them politically. Peter Baltimore as a child will go with Henry Highland Garnett and this will shape his life. And I bring this up because as much as education is so important and black Trojans stressed it and put a lot of effort into it, the education was not just in their books, it was in their civic engagement. That shaped Peter Baltimore's life and his friendship with Garnett Douglas 
or with, um, I'm sorry, with Frederick Douglass and Henry Highland Garnett will ultimately be why he names his son Garnett Douglas Baltimore. One of the other things that these black Trojans did that really shaped my life as I was learning about it and empowered me to continue to want to tell this story is that they didn't just do these things on paper. They were mobile and they were moving and they were traveling and they were connecting and they were also operating an underground railroad here. And that Underground Railroad was bringing enslaved people through Troy and to Canada. But there was also what I've coined in my work an above ground railroad. Mm. Mm. And the above ground railroad was using newspapers to create a black space of communication and to make Troy one of those spaces where free black men who were abolitionists and also civil rights workers were coming to and through Troy. It made Troy a nexus point in the black abolitionist movement and the black civil rights movement before the Civil War. This is also the precursor of the Great Migration. We've talked about this a little earlier. The first Great Migration of black folk in Detroit happens before the Civil War. It's how you get Alexander Thuy and others. The second, of course, comes after, really around 1900. These pre-Civil War African Americans in Troy in not just putting things in writing, not just setting up those physical buildings that people could see, black spaces. They also volunteered their bodies to fight against slavery. And two examples. First is during the Civil War, when New York State prohibited black men from fighting, free black men. Actually, the nation prohibited free black men from fighting in the Civil War when it began. So white men could enlist, they could volunteer, but the free black man could not. Men in Troy held meetings, as did men in other states, to push for their states to allow those black men to fight. (coughs) Black men got the right to fight the same time the slaves did with the Emancipation Proclamation. It says something about race relations, that your race, your skin color, usurped your legal status in America at that time. One of the men who had used the Underground Railroad to make it to Troy was a man named Robert Kelly. Here he is. Robert Kelly had escaped slavery in Virginia. He had gone to Hoosick, and then he settled in Troy. When time came for enlistment, he joined with other sons of these black Trojan abolitionist leaders, and they went off in the 20th U.S. Colored Regiment. After the Civil War, Robert Kelly came and moved to Troy. He chose it. The other man who came back to Troy alive was a man named Garrett Jefferson. His father was a man named Thomas Jefferson, not the third president of the United States. Um, But he was the man who helped to relocate John Brown to North Elba and to Timbuktu. He lived in Troy. Garrett went to the Civil War, he came home, he had his arm amputated from the injury. But he and Robert Kelly, they began to organize new civil rights and community elevation organizations and associations. One was a testament to black veterans, the Grand Army of the Republic, and the Masons. They were here. The other thing that these men did was advocate with black fathers in Troy who were fighting for their daughters to integrate Troy High School. 
During the Civil War, while the black men were away, one of the first black girls was admitted to Troy High School. Her name was Ada Bozeman. After that, the school prohibited the integration or the continuation of black children from attending. Alfred Williams, his daughter Jane, and others sued the Troy School District, and I'd like to say that they won, but they didn't. In 1872, the district was forced to fully integrate by the state legislature. So it was a statewide requirement for that to happen. These experiences, I think, are so important for Troy High School grads in particular to know. And I think they're important for our youth to understand. Because it means that people before them were organizing, connecting, advocating, and they had a vision of the future that they were designing and demanding in this city. And they had parents and grandparents who were demonstrating and providing a blueprint for how to get there. Church, school, community. As some of you may know, Robert C. Kelly, um, his son is George Bidel Kelly. You know, George Bidel. He grew up in Troy. He first attended RPI and it didn't fit for him, so he went to Cornell Uni University. While in Cornell, he helped found the first black Greek letter fraternity, the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. Proud member of Fifth Avenue Ladies Church. Yes, he is. I'm coming to that. Oh. 